So I want to start with a question. Has, has anyone here ever lost something? Yeah, I'd say people lost something. Yeah, and when you lose something, you usually are going to look for it, right? Especially when kids lose something, right? When kids lose something, it's like the end of the world. They think that uh, the entire world is falling apart because they can't find this thing that they're looking for. And usually as you're frantically looking for something, right, people notice that you're looking for something. They come along and say, hey, what is it that you're looking for? And what do you typically respond with when someone says, hey, hey, what is it that you're looking for? You should describe what it is that you're looking for, right? You say, hey, I'm looking for this. It's this color. It's this shape. It's this design, right? But why do you give those distinctive characteristics to the person who's looking for that lost object? Because it's your object, right? You're the one who's looking for it. But you're telling someone else who doesn't know what this object is. You're giving them those descriptors. And the reason that we do that is so that this third party that doesn't know what it is that they're looking for, based on that descriptive information, will know that they found it when they see it. They'll be able to identify it immediately based on those descriptive elements. It's no different for you and I as Christians. And what I want to share with you all this morning, it might sound familiar, but what I'm hoping it does this morning is I hope that it forces you to take a step back and look at it from a different angle. Because the truth is that when we talk about the subject, we tend to talk about it in terms of platitudes. And when we do that, we get away from the gravity and the depth and the, and the, the seriousness of the actual truth, right? And so where I'm going to be this morning is in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. If you, if you have your Bibles on you, great. If you have your smartphone, pull it out. If you don't have either of those, I think there's sure pocket Bibles, so you can grab those. And you've probably read through these verses before, but I'm reading from the English Standard Version in John chapter 13, starting at verse 34. It reads in this way, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, like I said, I'm sure many of you have read through these, through the book of John, have read through this chapter, have read through these verses countless times. And typically when we look at the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and 17 are commonly referred to as the upper room discourse. And the reason that they're called that is because these chapters represent the final moments that Jesus would spend with his disciples before going to the cross. Interestingly enough, though, if you look at chapter 13 and then compare it to, verse, uh, to chapters 14 through 17, you have this, um, this primary statement that Jesus is making in, in John chapter 13, and then he continues in John uh, in chapters 14 through 17, encouraging his disciples through this truth, ultimately ending in the high priestly prayer that we find in chapter 17 in the gospel of John. Now, here's the thing. When you read that, right, Jesus made it plain. He made it plain to his disciples that the defining attribute or characteristic that would identify them to the world would be love. That's what he says there. And not only that, this defining characteristic or attribute, Jesus states it not as, a, not as a choice, not as an option, but he expresses it as a commandment. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And now you might be sitting here saying, yeah, I'm a loving individual. You know, those of you who are married, I, you know, we love our spouses, right? Sometimes. Those of us who have children, we love our children sometimes, right? Some people say they love their jobs. Maybe. I don't. But if you do, that's great, right? But that's not the love that's being spoken about here, right? Because Jesus is telling them that this love, right? He's telling them that that you would love one another just as I've loved you. You are to love one another and that all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. So again, it's not an option. It's not something we can choose to do or not do. It's an express commandment that would be definitive and descriptive that would help everybody else identify who was a follower of Jesus. So the question that I want us to ponder this morning is this. How well do you love? Now, right off the bat, I want us to notice something. As you read those verses, especially in verse 34, Jesus is saying that he's giving them a new commandment. So then the question is, is this a new commandment? In one sense, it's new. And in one sense, it's not. In the the one sense that it's not, we know that if you go throughout all the Old Testament, this wasn't a new commandment. God's people were commanded to love the Lord their God, right? But even then, you can fast forward to Jesus' ministry, and in the book of Matthew, we see this captured, where Matthew captures where this is written down, where the rulers of the day would come, they try to challenge Jesus, and they ask him, you know, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? And in chapter 22, beginning in verse 37, verses 37 through 39, Jesus responds in this way. He says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now the disciples, they would have been aware of this exchange because they were there when Jesus had this exchange with the rulers of his day. And when Jesus gave them that summative text of the entire Old Testament built on these two commands, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, uh, all your heart, soul, and mind, and then loving your neighbor as yourself, this wouldn't have been news to them. But the love that Jesus is telling them there about that this new commandment that I give you to love one another, right? There was nothing about this love that was going to be something that they could do on their own. This love that was being spoken about here, because again, if you look at verse 34, he says that you would love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And so we know that the pretext here of where Jesus was going to go, he was ready to go to the cross. He's setting the disciples up for what's going to happen after he goes to the cross and after he rises again from the grave. And so this idea that this selfless, sacrificial, other-centered love that Jesus was going to perfectly express on the cross was not something that they were going to be able to do on their own. This is the part that was new. This was not something they were going to be able to do. Because Christ was about to go to the cross to to pay the penalty that we couldn't pay and die the death that we never could. He was going to show them the ultimate expression of his love. And so this new commandment that he's giving them is that the way that I have loved you. Paul captures this sentiment beautifully in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, he says this. He says, but God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A few verses earlier in that same chapter, Paul would also highlight that this love that was been poured out into the hearts of all of the hearts of, of people through the Holy Spirit, Romans five verses five. Nothing about this love, right? Nothing about this selfless, selfless, sacrificial, other center love is anything that we are capable of doing on our own accord. Both the capacity and the capability of being able to love the way that Jesus loved is because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, has been poured out into your hearts. If you claim Christ, if you've placed your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you now have both the capability and capacity to love the way that Jesus loved. But the question then becomes, do you do it? 
We have the capacity. We are also capable. But again, the question that I asked us to ponder is how well do we love? D.A. Carson, a known Christian apologist and theologian, he writes in this way, and this this quote is, is fantastic. I may read it twice because I want to make sure you capture it all. It says, The new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. The more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. The more we appreciate the love of the Savior, the higher His standard appears. The higher the standard appears, the more we recognize in our selfishness, in our innate self-centeredness, the depth of our own sin. With a standard like this, no thoughtful believer can ever say this side of the parousia, I am perfectly keeping the basic stipulation of the new covenant. Now that word parousia is, is a Greek word that literally means uh, to come or the coming, and it's typically referred to as Christ's second coming. So what Carson is saying there is that on this side, prior to Christ coming again, there's no one that can say that they are perfectly keeping this new commandment to love that the way Jesus loved. Now, the second part of this, right, the second part of this love that we find in, this, in these two verses is that it allows the world, it allows all people to know that we are followers of Jesus. Now, again, I want to put it out to you. I think you may have heard this uh, saying or this phrase put before. If you were in a court of law and they were uh, and they were trying to find out whether you were guilty of being a follower of Jesus Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The question of whether we love well. Listen, it's not optional. It's not something that we can choose to turn on or turn off. If you are a new creation in Christ, which you are, when you've placed your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, I've got news for you. This is your modus operandi. This is your MO. This is your motivation. This is why you live. This is your purpose. And the interesting thing apart that purpose is that it also is a witness to the world around them. Jesus was telling his disciples that, hey, not only are you to love the way that I loved you, but by doing that, the entire world will know. All peoples will know that you are my followers if you love one another. Now, think about this for a second. If we just took a step back, imagine the church at large. If the church at large would love this way consistently... Imagine how amazing its witness would be in the world today. But if we're honest with ourselves, all we need to do is take a simple step and look outside of the church. Big C Church, Christianity writ large. And we see all these different denominations. We see all these different divisions. We see all these different splits. I guarantee that people are sitting here and have their preferred theologians, their preferred teachers that they, that they lean towards and that they uh, castigate others because they're not in the, they don't include them in their fold, right? We are so adept at exercising what isn't approved by us that we miss that most of the time when we have these kinds of disagreements when we have these kinds of divisions or 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 splits in in the modern day church it's usually not about doctrinal issues more often than not it's the unloving way that we handle those disagreements no one said that we here as human beings are perfect individuals and we're all going to get along that's not it we're not going to sing songs and you know play kumbaya that was never the intention 
But what God intended, what Jesus had intended when he was giving this commandment to his disciples is that, listen, you guys are going to be the way that the world knows about me. And they're not going to know about me just purely by what you say. They're going to know about me by what you do and how you act. Simon Simic, a well-known motivational speaker and author, he writes in his book, probably one of his most popular books, he says, start with the why, how great leaders inspire everyone to take action. The primary aim and quote in that book is this. It says, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. It's not enough for us to speak about the love of God. It's not enough to speak about the what, right? Because again, if we don't speak about the why, then the what doesn't matter. I can give definitions to your blue in the face, but I don't give you the why behind the definition, then it doesn't matter. One of those popular passages that is read at weddings all throughout the world, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's considered the treatise on love, right? Everyone would go to that chapter. But here's the fascinating thing. But real quick, show of hands, who had that passage read at their wedding? Out of curiosity. Show <laughs> yeah. Don't be ashamed of that. It's a good chapter. But what we miss are the first three verses in that chapter. We typically zero in starting at verse 4. Most weddings are going to read from verse 4 to verse 8 and the first part of verse 8, but they don't read verses 1 through verse 3. And there's a reason they don't. So I'm going to read it here. 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses, and again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I, and I, if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. The whole point of 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4, is understanding what love isn't. It's not the things that you do. It's why you do them. It's why verses 4 through 8 are so profound in that chapter. But the the, the fascinating thing, though, is if you go to the end of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, Paul ends that chapter by saying, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way that he's speaking about is how to express God's love in the here and now through what you do, the way that you act, the why you do what you do. Because it doesn't matter what you do if it's absent the love of God. Just look at those first three verses. If you could know all of these truths of mysteries, if you could move mountains, if you could do all these things, but you're not doing it from the proper motivation that stems from the love of God that has been poured into your heart because of what Christ accomplished for you on Calvary, then it does not matter. What matters is why you're doing it when you recognize that you are who you are because of who Christ is and you want to share that message with the world that desperately needs to hear it. That is the why. That is why we love. That is what God expects. And here's the thing. Bear Creek Bible Church, I love this quote. If you guys know John Fetter, he's a wonderful guy. And he says this a lot, and I love it because it's a great quote. He says, Bible is Bear Creek Bible Church's middle name. Right. So 
we here in the Bible, in Bible church world, and for me, I'm, I'm going to be very honest, like Bible church world has been a new thing for us since moving to the, the Metroplex in the Northeast. We didn't have Bible churches. We had different things. Not to say that there's anything wrong with Bible church world, but the one thing I, I absolutely appreciate about Bible church world is Bible church world knows its Bible. Like, without a doubt. But here's the struggle. It's not enough that you know your Bible. Why do you know your Bible? It's not enough to give truth. Why do you share truth? Because even Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verses 15, he says that speaking the truth in love is not for the benefit of being correct or for being right. It's speaking the truth in love for the growth of that fellow believer, that fellow brother and sister in Christ. That is why you speak truth, because you love your brother and sister enough to come alongside of them and give them truth in the loving way that God intends. How often do we find ourselves using truth as a bludgeon to score points or to say that you're wrong and I'm right and to create these walls of division when what we're supposed to be doing is coming alongside those brothers and sisters because we love them enough to see them grow up into maturity in Christ, which is what Paul writes in Ephesians 4. How will the world know that we are followers of Jesus if we are the least practicing folks that show this love? If there is a proving ground for the love of God, it has to be His church. And if it's not His church, then we are in woeful, woeful disarray to think that we are going to have a positive witness to those around us. And please, do not kid yourself to think that you can get away with being unloving in the church and thinking you can be loving outside of it. That's called hypocrisy. What matters is being able to love your brothers and sisters. And the beauty of the organism that is the church is that you have people from all different walks and lives and breasts, a bunch of broken people that come together. And our shared commonology is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that made us part of his family so that we can come alongside one another and love each other well so that way the world around us can see that there's something different. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he wasn't speaking in ideology. He was speaking in practice. He was saying that the world will know that you are mine by the way you love one another. It is not an option. It is a commandment. It is an expectation. It is the motivation. It is the purpose. There's no accident that if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, the reason that Paul lays out all the things of what Jesus' love is in verses 4 through 7, and then you get to uh, verse 8, where he ends that verse, the first part of verse 8, by saying love never ends. That's what it says in the ESV. In other translation, it says love never fails. And why do you think Paul says that? Because love is not a thing. Love is sourced in a person. It is sourced in the person of Jesus Christ who was willing to come down on your behalf and go to the cross. He showed us what love is. And so the desire that he has is for us to show that love, live in it, and wear it out. And here's the thing, that word love that's being used here in John 13 and all throughout Scripture where this standard is being applied, it is the highest form of love. It is the Greek word agape. It is the highest form of love that you find described in the Greek. And it's not an accident. 
It's not the love that is dependent on someone's actions. It's not the love that is dependent where, you, where you're friendly. No, this is the love that flows from God that has been poured out by the third person of the Godhead into our hearts. We cannot sit here and say that we have an excuse. We cannot sit here and say that it is something we choose to exercise or not. We cannot sit here and say that it is something we can turn on or turn off. So church, I ask you again this morning, how well do you love? So you're like, all right, Roy, you've just spent the last 20 minutes. What do I do with this? How can I love better? How can I love well? How can I love the way that Jesus wants us to love? There are so many ways that we can go. But I'm going to give you two, because I think these two are the most accessible ways for us to demonstrate the love that has been poured out into our hearts from Jesus Christ. The first way is how you deal with your circumstances. First way that you can love well is how you deal with your circumstances. Chuck Swindoll has said this. He said that life is 10% what happens to me. I'm sorry, what happens to you. And 90% how you react to it. Life is 10% what happens to you. And 90% how you react to it. I firmly believe that if we, the church, spend more time in our own lives reflecting, meditating, and preaching to ourselves just what it cost God to make us His, there would be no room for the circumstances that get thrown at us in this life to take us off of that trajectory. It's easy to lose sight of things. I said this before about Doug the dog and the whole squirrel thing. We as Christians have tons of squirrel moments. But what I'm telling you is that the more time that you spend living and reflecting and realizing the love that God has for you, you will not be taken aside by the circumstances and curveballs and wrenches that life throws at you. When you think about what it cost Christ to make you His and what you are now and what He has provided for us as a result, the harder it becomes for life's circumstances to affect you. This is the sentiment that Paul captures in Romans 5, going back there, verses 3 through 5. Like I was quoting from verse 5 before, but if you go to those earlier verses in the same passage, this is what he says. He says, starting at verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. But don't miss this. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is how we respond to circumstance. When we remember that we have not been built for this world, but we have been built for the next one that we realize that the trappings of this world are not going to satisfy we like the writer of hebrews can bring to mind that those who died in faith did not see the promises but appreciated them from afar because they desired a greater city they didn't want to go back to where they were from they desired to go to that heavenly city whose builder and maker is god and so they were not ashamed of god and god was not ashamed to be theirs when we realize that we are built for the world to come. We are able to handle the adversity and trials that this life throws at us with the hope that is anchored in the love of God. And you always aren't going to respond to those trials the right way every time, and that's okay, because we're human. But it's in those moments that we get the most clarity. It's in those moments where we are soberly reminded 
that the love of God trumps our circumstances. He loves you. He bankrupted the heavens to save you. And his resurrection assures you of a coming eternity where all these circumstances will fade away. It's why Paul can then tell the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So church, stop letting your circumstances dictate your response and start letting the love of God dictate your responses to them. How we deal with our circumstances is a way that we can love well. Don't let your circumstances dictate your response. Meditate and dwell on the love of God and let that dictate your response to them. The second one of how we can love well is how we deal with one another. That seems simple enough, right? We go back to the text. We are called to love one another the way that Jesus loved and loves us. And one of the most practical ways that we can do that is in how well we practice forgiveness. Especially given how easy it is for us to hold a grudge. I am willing to bet every single person sitting here can think of that person right off the bat, comes right into your mind that you know you need to forgive. I'm willing to bet. No show of hands because this is live streamed. But I'm guaranteed, I'm willing to bet that we all have it. We all do, right? Because it's so easy for us to do that. But again, if there is a group of people that should be setting the bar for what practicing forgiveness well looks like, it should be the church. It should be the church. It should be those who follow Christ. When Christ was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he makes a, a salient point, and we mention this sometimes during communion. He says that while worship is important, he says that as you're bringing your offering, if you realize that you have either wronged a brother or a brother has wronged you, you are to lay that gift down at the altar and go reconcile first before you come and offer worship because worship is predicated on the one who loved you. And how can you come in the sake of love when you hold a position of division and enmity against someone else? You can't. That's why it was so important that you had to get this right, that love had to be practiced. Who are we to create a higher bar of forgiveness than the one that Jesus has given us? Remember, Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner. We read that in Romans chapter 5. It wasn't based on any preconditions. It wasn't transactional. It was unconditional. Now, do you see your fellow brother and sister the way that Jesus views you? Do you view them the same way in realizing that Jesus was willing to go to the cross for them? That Jesus was willing to forgive their sins by bearing it all on the cross for them? That he was willing to wipe out every single offense, past, present, and future? Who are we to create a higher standard of forgiveness than the one that has been offered to us on the cross? But it's easy. It's easy for us to do that because we're human. It's easy to hold grudges. I say this as, as a South Indian, and, and my fellow brown folk will appreciate this, but as, I, as we grew up as kids, especially in these churches, man, it was so easy in our churches for these people to just hate one another Monday through Saturday and show up on Sunday and put on like the nicest face, like nothing happened. We all knew something was going on. Everybody knew, Right? And they would, and then it got funnier because then you have different factions that were aligning with somebody who was wronged or that person who was wronged or this belief or that belief. And they would still show up at church. 
because they didn't have a high view of the love of God. Right? They didn't have a high view of the love of God. They didn't view one another the way God viewed them. Even in my own family, my late mother and my, and my uncles, man, they were prodigious at their ability to hold a grudge. They could hold grudges for years. They could hold grudges for years. They could go years without speaking, years without interacting with one another. And all of a sudden, something gets papered over. And then all it would take was one person to say something or look someone a different way, and all of a sudden, the grudge is back on. We all do it. But the question is, are we loving well when we do that? It's why John would write in 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And propitiation is simply a $10 theological word, which means to appease the wrath of God. So reread that verse that says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and send his son to be the appeasement for our sins. If, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God was satisfied in the sacrifice of Christ, who are we to hold a different standard to forgive one another? Husbands are commanded by their, in Scripture, to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25. Believers are reminded by Paul in Romans chapter 14 that they aren't to destroy those for whom Christ died over petty disagreements. No, because when we do that, we are no longer walking in love. For those of you who have children, this is the easiest place to practice loving well is in your own home. And the funny thing is, you're going to fall flat on your face more often than you get it right. But that's okay because it is a reminder of just how much you are loved by God and the motivation that then you have to love your children well to reflect the love that Jesus poured out for you on the cross. When my mother died of cancer in 2012, we were planning the funeral and as, is, and as is common in South Indian funerals, those, those funerals usually last two days. You had one day that was for um, people to come and pay their respects and, and speak on behalf of the deceased. And then the second day was the formal service and the burial. To this day, I remain stunned at the number of people who came to that funeral to pay their respects for my mother. Now, funeral homes, I mean, they, they could be bigger, they could be small. In the, in the Northeast, they, were, they tended to be on the... I guess the medium side of things because everything's bigger in Texas. But I don't, the reason I remember this distinctly is because the funeral home was packed wall to wall, standing room only. You couldn't sit anywhere. All the seats had been taken. There were cars lined up outside the funeral home that went back down to the road. The funeral directors would come to me and my siblings and say, is your mom like a Indian dignitary or something? Because we usually don't see this kind of turnout unless for someone famous. I'm like, no, there was nothing famous about her. But what was different is that half the people that we saw at the funeral, we had no idea who they were. But they all knew my mother. And when they would come to us and they would pay their respects, you know, they, on some of the casual conversations, we'd pick up with them like, hey, how did you know my mother? And my mother, she emigrated to the country, to the United States as a nurse back, you know, in the, in the late um, 60s. And she worked at the same hospital in the South Bronx where we grew up her entire career. She worked in the hood. That's where she was. And that's where we grew up. And she loved on those people. If I had a 10% amount of the faith that my mother had, 
my life trajectory would be so much different because she was the one who poured into us to demonstrate God's love for us day in and day out. And she carried that to her workplace. And these people, most of whom did not know God, they would say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, then that is why we are here because there was something different about this woman. Talk about a kick to the teeth. But that is the call, right? If we can't get it right here, we can't get it right out there. The whole point of this is asking yourself, and so I'm going to ask for the third time, church, how well do you love? Think about how you can love better in your circumstances and think about how you can love better with one another. Because I want to close us with a stanza from an old hymn. It's called The Love of God, written by Frederick Martin Lehman in 1917. And I'm going to end with the third stanza in the chorus. And it reads in this way. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. You pray with me. Father in heaven, we know we come up short. We know that the standard that you have given us to love one another is based in the perfect work of your Son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, who went to Calvary. Lord, we know that the bar is high and we know that the command is the command and that we are asked to live up to that command. But Lord, we fall woefully short. We would just pray today that as we walk away from here, that if those of us who needed that encouragement, who needed that reminder, who needed to be told that this is what it means to love and love well, that we would do so because this world desperately needs to see it. Lord, help us not to pay lip service to what we hear, but to apply it to our hearts and to respond in kind so that we too can say on this side of the parousia, come Lord Jesus, come, but until then, Lord, let us love and love well. And all of God's people said, amen.